Firewalk With Me offers us one final surprise. In the Red Room, Laura is seated next to Agent Cooper. Despite his mistakes, missteps, and misunderstandings, Cooper is here in this moment to reassure Laura, to tell her that her pain is over, and to guide her into understanding what she has accomplished. The angel has returned, and when she sees the one that's meant to help her, Laura Palmer will weep with joy. And that's another clip from She Would Die for Love, the chapter 25 of Journey Through Twin Peaks that I sampled and discussed in the previous archive episode. Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. This is one of several episodes I'll be sharing on uh, Thursday and Friday to uh, read pieces or play clips from podcasts and video essays that I've done in the past on Firewalk with me. I was trying to upload this in two bigger episodes and the podcast platform wouldn't let me do it because uh, I've used up all my extra uh, room in this past couple weeks with Firewalk Me podcasts that ran longer than usual. So uh, that's why we're getting these in smaller doses, which might be better anyway, since um, these are all sort of an eclectic collection of pieces that maybe are better in smaller chunks. So you can listen to it that way. As the video series came to its conclusion early in 2015, I published a visual accompaniment uh, where I put up screenshots of all the parts of the video that were like manipulations of the underlying footage. So whether there was titles imposed on there or it was several clips playing on or around each other. Um, I I used newsprint uh, from articles that were written about Lynch at the time with shots of him and Isabella Rossellini. There were split screens, uh, Deer Meadow versus Twin Peaks, Firewalk With Me style versus the shows. Cooper's Dream versus Laura, The Spirit World versus Psychological Crises, and there were superimpositions of iconography around Laura's death in the show and the film, and quotes from the Upanishads, and then also a quote from uh, Cheryl Lee over footage from Inland Empire. So I'll link that below. Obviously, it can only go so far in uh, describing what is essentially a visual, uh, entirely visual post, in this case, not even with with any uh, audio, but I'll read some of those, those titles and, and, and um, kind of share what, what I quoted from there. And then you can see the full context, both in the screenshots and in the video. So for one thing, for the, um, for the Upanishads, the passages I uh, quoted from in there, this was something that I started reading around the time, the great Hindu Uh, spiritual texts from millennia ago that uh, were very influential for Lynch in his study of transcendental meditation and uh, actually ended up being cited a couple years later when he has um, some stuff in the return that I I won't get into that much. I don't want to spoil it yet, but uh, you know, the, the Upanishads do actually come into, uh, into play there through one of the characters. So, Here are some of the areas where I did that. First, Laura walking into the roadhouse. Uh, First, the log lady comes and puts her hand on her cheek and tells her, you know, says the whole quote about once this fire is started. And at that point, I put titles on the screen saying, Forgetting our divine origin, we become ensnared in the world of change and bewail our helplessness. But when we see the Lord of love in all his glory, adored by all, we go beyond sorrow. 
I won't try to pronounce which of the Upanishads these quotes are from. I'll probably mess it up, but uh, all from different uh, different Upanishads there. When Laura walks into the roadhouse, I have the titles Where One Sees Separateness, Hears Separateness, Knows Separateness. That is the finite. The infinite is beyond death, but the finite cannot escape death. With the shot of Laura standing in the door in the, in the picture on her wall, I quoted, It is said of these states of consciousness that in the dreaming state, when one is sleeping, the shining self who never dreams, who is ever awake, watches by his own light. There are quotes from Lynch, quotes from uh, Charlotte Fraze's diary, which I read the entirety of in this podcast, uh, with juxtaposed with Laura's performance, or Cheryl Lee's performance as Laura, Ron Garcia's words. And then at the end of the She Would Die for Love video, I have basically four screens, four shots from the film with this quote. Brahman is all, and the self is Brahman. The self has four states of consciousness. Over Laura lying on the couch, staring up at the ceiling, when she's talking about angels, I quote, The first is called Vaishnavara, in which one lives with all the senses turned outward, aware only of the external world. Over Laura, in the picture, inside the picture, on the wall, I have... Tajesa is the name of the second, the dreaming state in which, with the senses turned inward, one enacts the impressions of past deeds and present desires. Over Laura being unwrapped in plastic, fading into the red room, curtains, the title says, The third state is called Prajna, of deep sleep, in which one neither dreams nor desires. Let him become conscious in Prajna, and it will open the door to the state of abiding joy. And finally, with Cooper in the red room, or Laura in the red room with Cooper, with his hand on her shoulder, she's looking up where the angel will appear. It says, the fourth is the superconscious state called Turiya, neither inward nor outward, beyond the senses and the intellect, in which there is none other than the Lord. So this is all from the Mandukya Upanishad, all that, that passage um, I will note for years, I mean, well, actually still, because I can't fix videos, um, certainly not on YouTube, and it would be complicated on Vimeo, I had like an A instead of, or have an A instead of a U, so I fixed it in the screenshot, can't fix it in the uh, video, very embarrassing, because it's such a crucial moment in the, uh, in the uh, video, but it is what it is. I also had superimpositions of the Log Lady introductions on the TV that the Inland Empire character is watching, the girl from the end of that film. More juxtapositions. The journey through Twin Peaks will always be my kind of most... Um, how would I put it? It's not exactly the most succinct. I mean, it's like a six-hour series or something, but the most... Um, idealized kind of form of how I would want to express my thoughts on Twin Peaks, even though I love doing these podcasts, I love writing essays, doing it in audio-visual format, doing it in that moment where the passion was at its height for this work. Since then, I think I've become sort of more meditative and contemplative, cerebral in a way about the show and film. It can still hit me in a certain way, but there was something about that moment, that first year, where it was just totally 
under the spell of that work in, in a very unique way that uh, I've only felt towards certain works or, um, you know, projects or things I was working on uh, a few times really in my life. And this was just something uh, incomparable there. And the videos came directly out of that. So afterwards it was, I continued to discuss Firewalk with me and uh, and kind of draw out different things, many of which had their roots in, uh, well, before the videos, but kind of had their full first full flowering there, and then they continue to blossom in other ways, if that analogy makes sense. Here is what I wrote in late 2015, uh, at the end of the year that began with me finishing those videos. I went to New York, I saw a David Lynch Jacques Rivette retrospective at Lincoln Center, where uh, the films of the French director and of David Lynch were paired off in interesting ways. And uh, Firewalk with me was paired with the film Joan the Maid about Joan of Arc. So here are a few quotes from that essay I wrote in response. On February 23rd, two young women lived their last day as mere mortals. Joan the Maid, a 15th century French peasant, arrives at the disgraced Dauphin's court, setting a course that will crown him king within five months and burn her at the stake within another two years. Laura Palmer, an 80s American high school student, confronts her abusive father, precipitating a chain of events that will climax later that night when he brutally murders her. These worldly, sordid details are amplified by a larger spiritual struggle in which the women's lives and deaths are enmeshed. Laura rejects the evil spirit that shares her father's body and wants to inhabit hers by accepting a mysterious green ring bonding her to a rival spirit, ensuring salvation alongside death. Likewise, Joan becomes a war hero by listening to supernatural voices, and she overcomes her brutal imprisonment by proclaiming her divine mission, paving the way for her execution as a heretic. Jacques Rivette's Joan the Maid Part 1, The Battles, and Part 2, The Prisons, 1994, and David Lynch's Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me, 1992, take opposite approaches to these two heroines. Joan observes the saint's behavior without accessing her visions, Never once do we hear those famous voices. Well, Firewalk With Me immerses us completely in Laura's consciousness, exposing her hallucinations and weird encounters with a ferocious vigor, convincing us they are absolutely true. Both films take faith as their subject. Perhaps because of their filmmakers, they address and fulfill that subject in very different ways. On screen, both Joan and Laura move amongst their peers while keeping their own silent counsel but it's safe to say Joan's support system is stronger than Laura's. Even in her first prison, the young warrior is briefly protected by her captor's wife, an aunt, and the second prison at least includes a priest or two who will comfort her as her death approaches. Laura pushes her friends away to protect them, and consequently, her suffering is entirely lonely. In the end, though, both characters will die alone, panicked and terrified, martyrs who desperately do not want to be martyrs, clinging frantically to the hope that there is something beyond the castle wall or outside the train car door. Joan, consumed by flames, peers through the billowing smoke to see a crucifix held aloft at her request. Laura, spitting up blood, places an emerald ornament on her finger. In both cases, the object represents a promise of spiritual deliverance, but not a guarantee. The two have arrived at this terminal station by making a particular stand. Laura, telling her father to stay away and pushing herself to accept the truth of her situation, and Joan, asserting her own visionary stature and labeling her own accusers as the true blasphemers. 
both confrontations triggered by the immediately preceding scenes of sexual assault. The characters are convinced that they cannot survive through denial, deeming death preferable to saying nothing, though it's important to remember that the killers, not the victims, have chosen death as their consequence. And I end the essay by saying, perhaps the greatest difference between these two films of faith is that the faith of Joan of Arc exceeds that of Jacques Rivette, while the faith of David Lynch exceeds that of Laura Palmer. In 2016, I was a guest on the Twin Peaks Unwrapped podcast. I was a guest many times over the past five years, but this occasion was to discuss Firewalk with me the first time that Brian watched it, uh, along with Ben, who was guiding him through the series. So this is a spot where uh, we talk about Mark Frost versus Robert Engels as uh, David Lynch's collaborator. I have the um, impression from his work on the show and also just from interviews with him, where he sort of comes off as um, very kind of humorous and enjoys sort of like the esoteric humor and sort of fantastical offbeat elements, almost mm-hmm. sci-fi in a way where he talks about Cooper being in two places at once. I feel his presence a lot in Deer Meadow. Mm-hmm. I think it's got exactly the kind of razor, deadpan humor that him and Lynch shared and that Frost didn't quite. I think Frost, Frost plus Lynch to me comes off as more quirky and kind of almost a little a little like parody, a little like farce, hmm. him and Frost. I think on the air and uh, at least that premiere episode and some of the other stuff that, that him and Lynch worked on, you hear about their ideas for the one saliva bubble and hmm. everything. They're very sort of like quirky and almost joyous. The Engels Lynch is almost like a little bit crude, a little bit deadpan, hmm. um, very kind of like acerbic humor which is just Deer Meadow to a T, you know? Mm, so I yeah. feel like he had a lot to do with that. I have never, ever been able to figure out what he had to do with the Lara stuff, and it drives me nuts, because mm. I've listened to so many interviews with Engels, and he always kind of navigates the conversation. I would say mostly to the the, the Lodge stuff and the Jeffries and, and all of that. Like, he mm. loves to talk about that stuff. When he talks about Lara, he talks more about the show. He says, well, there was sort of a spirit of grief that developed the town that when we took that away the show really lost something so it was Mm. good to go back and capture that he doesn't talk as much from what i've heard about actually developing that part of the story so i would i would love to know i i'll tell you this i like to i'd like to think that maybe that one line of donna's is his when she says if i had a nickel for every cigarette your mom smoked i'd be dead (laughs) (laughs) i want to give him credit i mean that could be lynch too that's definitely totally consistent with lynch's absurdist sense of humor but i I like that about the film it very much has that kind of dry Mm. absurdist edge which honestly i like a little more than the wacky side that's the word i was looking for before i think frost and lynch together sometimes get a little wacky i read the entire summary section of my uh, favorites series entry on this as the uh, intro to this whole podcast but Firewalk With Me was ranked number 47. It uh, reached that rank in 2011 during the long period in which I not only didn't uh, write about uh, Firewalk With Me or Twin Peaks much at all on the site, but I actually didn't watch the film, uh, which is amazing how many times I've seen it in the past, uh, not just five years, but uh, almost closer to 10 at this point, certainly seven and a half years at the time of this recording at least. Uh, watched over and over for different projects, different writings, Um, But at first, when I first saw the film, wrote that first review, it was then five and a half years before I ever watched it again. 
And that's somewhat unusual for a film that really moves me and I find really powerful. I, I usually do rewatch it at least within a year or two, if not, you know, right away. Um, but this, I kind of held off. Like, I need to just let that first experience kind of linger. So anyways, during that time, I made a favorite films list, and Firewalk With Me is at number 47. Um, it would be, I mean, it would be hard to make a film like this now because at the time, the films, however I ranked them, it was fairly subjective, but it was, you know, they all had a kind of a quality. And now I've spent so much time with this film and dug into it so much that it it's kind of separate and different from them. So it wouldn't, it would feel weird to rank it in the middle of a hundred list. Um, but also even just putting it up at number one, would be like, it's almost like an apples and oranges thing, like the way that I engage with this film and other films. So, but at the time it was a film among films. And so that was where I, I found it. And, uh, Years later, when I was back into Twin Peaks and Firewalk with me in a big way, I came to write uh, reviews of all of the entries I had chosen on that list. So with Firewalk with me, here's a passage from my uh, reflection on that film. Any great film is defined as much by brilliant sequences as overall shape. And Firewalk with me is no exception, with some of the most searing audiovisual experiences Lynch ever placed on celluloid. The immersive hypnotic pink room nightclub the nerve-jangling verbal assault of a van-driving one-armed man, the vicious, heart-rending humiliation imposed by Laura's dad Leland, Ray Wise, when she arrives to dinner with dirty hands, and especially the final three or four minutes, no sound save the soul-saturating strains of Angelo Badalamente's voice of love motif. As Cheryl Lee's face conveys the catharsis Laura Palmer could never receive on a show that posited her as the dead girl. In 2016, there was a Reddit rewatch, where uh, they went through the whole series, their people avoided spoilers, and I ended up writing very long comments on this that I turned into an episode guide, a viewer companion for first-time viewers in uh, 2018. So some of these entries were sort of short, um, just riffs on certain ideas about the episode. Other times, my commentary was longer. Firewalk with me, there was uh, uh, not just a longer comment, but actually several that I made into different entries in this companion. And one of them I read about on the previous podcast for uh, the season two finale. It was preparing for Firewalk with me. Uh, so I read that one, and then now I will read my response to Firewalk with me uh, for first with first-time viewers in mind. There are essentially two different groups of Firewalk with me viewers. Actually, there are many more than two, but we'll stick with two for the sake of simplicity. In the first group are those who tune in hoping for something like the show, who after spending week after week, 30 episodes in total, with a diverse, charming array of townsfolk like Pete, Audrey, Lucy, Catherine, Ben, Truman, Andy, Ed, Nadine, and so on, naturally expect to check in with our pals, and are deeply disappointed when we don't. And only about 5-10 to minutes of Cooper, the man who carried Twin Peaks on his back? This must be some elaborate joke. The real Twin Peaks, the movie, must be hiding behind this one, like Bob behind the dresser, ready to pop out and laugh at us for believing in the reality of a two-and-a-half-hour horror film about incest starring a character who is dead the whole time on the series and whose entire story, including her climactic bloody death, we already know. Not to mention the bizarre half-hour prologue starring Harry Dean Stanton and David Bowie, replacing Cooper with the guy from 24 and the guy who sang Wicked Game. As strange as the show got, and that finale was straight-up experimental, it always stayed inside certain bounds, the conventions of a serialized narrative, even as it stretched those bounds past their breaking points. 
Stylistically, the episodes looked a certain way, even when a Lynch or even a Keaton went out on a limb. They were methodically paced, featuring long takes and wide master shots, nothing like the quickly cut, woozy steadicam, extreme close-up style of this movie. What's going on? What was Lynch smoking? I can certainly understand that viewpoint in the abstract, but it's hard for me to understand how they can't see the other side, too. The second group, to which I belong, feels like it has tapped into a hidden, crucial frequency. Somehow we knew this world existed all along, also behind every good or bad episode on the show, and especially behind the placid, ominous pilot. Watching this film for the first time, we aren't going in a new direction, we are ripping the facade away and staring at what lay beneath the whole time. The disorientation that anyone will feel coming to this film from the show, as we amble along with a series of strangers, aside from Lynch himself, somehow feels right to us, like a dream that has just gotten more intense and accordingly more real. And when the theme music kicks in over that comforting mountain vista, and then Laura herself walks towards us on the sidewalk, the paradox increases. We've never been closer to home, yet we've never felt further away. Everything is different, even Donna. But this tells us not that the film has departed from a gold standard, but that before we were hearing echoes, and now we've reached the source. Like a visionary, or an acid head, walking around their own neighborhood and marveling at the familiar with new eyes, there is a feeling of lost illusions. Firewalk With Me gives me the same feeling as the final 45 minutes of Mulholland Drive. Not deja vu exactly, but as Major Briggs put it, a reunion with the deepest wellspring of our being. And then in another piece in that companion, in that uh, Reddit rewatch, I wrote about the ending of Firewalk With Me. And this was in response, I, I think this is a part of the piece. I don't know that it's the whole thing, but it might be because some of these were kind of short. Uh, in response to a, a great comment by Bal Haman, who wrote uh, in part, if the only glimmer of hope is in the afterlife, it makes it all the more horrible for me. When I saw Laura smiling at the end, I was just crying and not from relief at finally seeing her freed, as others have put it, but because when years of abuse and trauma culminate in death, that's it. There's nothing afterwards except the dissonant serenity of a dead girl's face that seems to be asleep. To be clear, I'm not saying that movies have to follow my metaphysics views. What I'm saying is how, far from providing any kind of comfort, this final scene just exacerbated in me the horror of everything that I'd just seen before, and I felt an overwhelming sadness which few works of fiction have ever aroused in me. So that was the comment that I was responding to. And uh, I recommended my She Would Die for Love video, alluding to some of the content that uh, sort of reaches toward this sense of what this ending could mean, other than just a sadness that Lars' only reward was in death. And I wrote, I think on one level, Firewalk With Me is a psychological portrait of abuse. That's the level I recognized right away, and it made a lot of the rest of the film feel extraneous to me. But on another level, the level that not only subverts but also fulfills the show the film is also a spiritual allegory. This is the purpose of its narrative, and why it's not simply a series of painterly portraits, though it would still be great if it was. For all the writers praising or attacking Lynch as a postmodernist, concerned only with form, and despite Lynch's own refusal to expl explicate messages or meanings, he has a very clear spiritual ethos, shaped in large part by his involvement with transcendental meditation, in many ways a highly questionable institution, but also, ahem, transcending the pleasant platitudes of that movement to suggest that the only way to the light is through the darkness. 
My advice for anyone who wants to get the ending, but doesn't buy the tenets of Hinduism, which is, I submit, essentially what Lynch is working with here, despite the Christian iconography of angels, is to put aside specific theological questions of afterlife or reincarnation or karma or whatever, and focus on the outcome as an allegory for life as it is lived, with the death and rebirth symbolic, involving the realization of fundamental truths and expansion of consciousness. Oftentimes religions just end up being how universal experiences are packaged and sliced off from one another. Laura's pain is extremely real, but so, ultimately, is her relief. On a Twin Peaks Unwrapped podcast, I uh, came on to talk about the Owl Cave Ring. They started doing sections where I would come on and talk about various themes. So here's a little bit of that discussion. So here it is, Lost in Twin Peaks. First of all, there's this assumption that the ring has something to do with death and doom. Um, I guess you could say doom because, you know, the people who wear it, something, or people who wear it or encounter it, something unfortunate usually happens to them. But uh, I think it's significant Teresa isn't wearing it when she's killed. Um, but so the question is then, what do all of these disparate occurrences of the ring have in common? And I think every single one has in common that they're, uh, they involve a character coming to either coming to greater knowledge or trying to find something out. Um, it's, it's always about this idea of, of sort of discovering something or learning more. So Chet Desmond is trying to solve the mystery, and he sees the ring, and he reaches for it, and we never see him touch it. Accordingly, he's out of the film. We never find out any more about him or what he discovered or anything like that. Mm. Um, Teresa is only shown wearing the ring at the moments where she has power over Leland, where, she knows, where she's starting to realize he may be Laura's father. Uh, that happens in the motel parking lot, and it also happens in the missing pieces when she calls him to blackmail him. In fact, they have her uh, quite prominently playing with the ring on her finger so that it's it's visible and you notice that. So in both of those scenes, there's an indication that it has something to do with her power. And I'll also point out that uh, people associate the left arm going numb with the ring. But in fact, uh, we only see the, the arms being numb when the characters don't have a ring. Uh, that's true of Teresa. Her ring certainly, her, her hand certainly isn't numb when she's making the phone call or anything like that. Um, and it is numb in the trailer when she's being killed and she's not wearing it. Same thing with Laura. She, she holds her hand, she holds her arm in bed, uh, and it's numb and it's kind of dead at her side. And then when she opens up her palm to see the ring in it, her, her hand is not numb, her arm is not numb, it's fully mm -hmm. mobile. Um, so at that point, I would kind of point out something Martha Nokumson said uh, in her book, The Passion of David Lynch, which is a huge influence on how I see the ring. She points out that, uh, you know, Laura frees us with fear, but it's also clearly, but having the ring in her hand is also clearly a return to animation in her left hand, despite her anxiety. And then she walks out, she's relieved to find the ceiling fan is inert. The ring is once again connected with relief for her. Hmm. So I think those points are really important. And it's also true throughout the film, you have that ambiguous moment um, and I'm not totally sure what to make of it, where the little man it says, with this ring, I'd be wed, and a lot of people interpret it as he's sort of allied with Bob. But throughout the entire film, he's, he's clearly very much opposed to him. They're always kind of working at counter purposes. And uh, I think a lot of people point out the little man and Mike, Philip, you know, Philip Gerard, 
all these entities that are associated with the spirit Mike, because the little man is his arm and everything like that, mm. they're all very connected to the rain. You know, I think is the case to be made that he's drawing Laura to him with this rain. And he's clearly a figure who's juxtaposed and opposed to Bob. Yeah. So, uh, again, there you have a case of the ring being a good thing. It's, it's leading someone, you know, basically away from Bob. The thing that bothers me about the way that people frame it, in terms of it being a dangerous thing and all of that, is I don't think Laura is choosing suicide in the train car. Hmm. Uh, she may die as a result of her choice, but her choice is to confront the truth and to refuse Bob. That's her choice. Now, if she dies as a result of that, okay, but I think people mix cause and effect. They think, okay, um, you know, she refuses Bob because she wants to die, or Bob kills her because she wants to die. And I don't think that's the case at all. I think what happens is she is accepting this, this unknown quantity, this ring, um, this, this sort of knowledge, not just of Leland and Bob, a refusal to kind of cover up the truth about that, but also a connection to this larger spiritual reality. And I think, you know, we talk about the Lodge as a physical place that the ring takes you to, but I think it's important to keep in mind its uh, more metaphorical meaning, which is a higher state of consciousness. And that's something we'll get into when we, you know, eventually discuss Hinduism and how it relates to Twin Peaks. But mm. uh, Lynch is somebody who unequivocally, and in fact has made his life's mission, the advancement of higher states of consciousness and have, helping people to access them. That's what Transcendental Meditation is, full stop. So, uh, you know, that, that's, that's what the ring is really linking her to, and her dream and these spaces that she can go to that are beyond her, her very claustrophobic everyday life. And those spaces are frightening, and they're very unknown, and they're, they're, they're chilling, and you have to kind of make a leap of faith to enter them. But, you know, as she, as she kind of discovers, they're much fuller and richer and uh, safer, really, than her, than her reality with Bob. And here I want to, again, read from Martha Nockhamson, because I think she just puts it beautifully, uh, the way that she describes it. So in her book, The Passion of uh, David Lynch, Martha Nockhamson says, At this extremity, we see two visionary truths. First, in taking the ring, Laura is choosing not oblivion, but survival. Second, we see that this kind of death that results from the leap of faith is appealing away of the rational illusion of boundaries. So I think that's absolutely key. Um, you see movies going back to Blue Velvet and Racerhead, and uh, certainly in Blue Velvet, the characters, they see a deeper reality, and then they kind of go back to, it seems like they kind of go back to the illusion at the end of the film, where the Robins are back, and they seem very mechanical, and everybody's happy, but it's like, they haven't, it doesn't seem like they fully learned or passed through the, the experiences they had in the film. And Twin Peaks and Firewalk, with me, it's, it's kind of the opposite. You, they discover the darkness underneath the surface, and they can't go back to that light, that lightness, that vision of like the mechanical Robin. They have to pass completely through the darkness and pain and get to the other side, which is an understanding. All of that is unified. It's part of a bigger picture, which is beautiful. The good, the bad, the ugly. And that's another key point. Lynch believes in the unified field. That's what he calls it. It's sort of a term that's been, I, I guess you can find it sort of a cross-section of um, a, a certain mode of quantum physics, and again, transcendental meditation. In fact, I think the, the TM people use it a lot. And it's this idea that underneath everything, underneath the chaos and the confusion, there is an underlying order to the universe, and that's a very Hindu concept. Hmm. And that's the last thing to point out about the ring, is that it's a circle, but it's like a, it's a still circle. It's not moving. The fan is a moving circle. The record player is a moving circle. These are like symbols of this kind of recurring cycle and pattern 
but this is like it's a frozen kind of stately, immobile circle, which represents peace and stability and a, and a sort of order to, to, to Lara's universe that she doesn't have anywhere else. In my Twin Peaks character series entry on The Spirits, which is my biggest, longest, overflowing entry with tons of material in it, it's obviously touching on the whole show, so I didn't mention it as part of the archive, but I do want to uh, quote uh, a part dealing with the monkey. So here's what I wrote. To what extent is the mythology of Twin Peaks related, coincidentally or otherwise, to Hindu practice, ancient Vedic scripture, and the practice and theory of transcendental meditation? These ideas were explored on a couple Dugpa threads several years ago, specifically in Vedic Hindu influence on Fire Walk With Me, but also scattered throughout the Owl Cave Ring, thematic significance. Worth reading if the subject interests you. So I link to those forums there. Considering Lynch's spiritual beliefs, one of the most fascinating associations is with Hanuman, the monkey god in the Hindu text the Ramayana. Lynch's praise appears as a pull quote on a recent translation of this ancient epic by a transcendental meditation guru. Years ago, I researched Hanuman for my video essay on the spirit world of Twin Peaks. None of this material made it into the final work, but I'll share some quotations here. You can determine their relevance for yourself. I found many quite striking in light of Fire Walk With Me's end especially my interpretation of Laura and the angel. Quote. uh, There's four quotes here. I'll pause after each. Because of his bravery, perseverance, strength, and devoted service, Hanuman is regarded as a perfect symbol of selflessness and loyalty. Worship of Hanuman helps the individual to counter the bad karma, born out of selfish action, and grants the believer fortitude and strength in his or her own trials during the journey of life. I'll link the sources below. They're to be found in this spirits entry, but uh, so you don't have to scroll through and find them. I'll, I'll link them in the show notes here. It was decreed that Hanuman would remain blissfully unaware of his own prowess, unless, during the course of a meritorious deed, his memory would remind him of his superhuman ability. It will be seen later how this apparently insignificant matter lays bare the symbolic significance of Hanuman. Hanuman's name, too, illustrates his self-effacing character, being made up of Hanan, annihilation, and Man, mind, thus indicating one who has conquered his ego. When Hanuman enters Rama's life, he changes Rama's world. He transforms a crisis, the loss of Sita, into an opportunity, rid the world of Ravana. He transforms a victim into a hero. And then I add to these quotes, uh, by saying, at one point Hanuman shows his devotion to the central figures by tearing open his chest to reveal his beating heart with the two lovers inside, hence the illustration below, which I unfortunately haven't been able to trace to its original artist. It was posted without attribution where I found it. I like to think that the red room in which we see Cooper and Laura come together is in some sense an expression of the same idea, the beating heart of Twin Peaks, so to speak. And the images of a blue monkey with a uh, red um, area where the the heart would be in which a man and a woman or a a god and a woman are uh, are touching hands. So you think of that in the end where the blue monkey whispers and we're led into the red room with with Cooper and Laura uh, together there. And one thing to mention before I forget, um, there's a million pieces I could share in this podcast, but one other that just hasn't come up that I did want to throw in here, and I was reminded when reading the Reddit rewatch comment 
about how there are different groups of firewalking reviewers and different ways of kind of contextualizing it and seeing it. There's a great piece called The Four Placements of Firewalking. I want to throw that into the mix as well as we're winding down the podcast and uh, make sure that 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 gets a shout out. That's it for today's episode. I will be continuing this either tonight or tomorrow. And as always, uh, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can become a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. And then uh, I'm actually going to go back a little. I'm mostly trying to stay chronological, but it was around the time of this screenshot collection in that video in the She Would Die for Love. I close it with a quote that I haven't mentioned at all anywhere in these po- in this whole long podcast. I'm kind of surprised by that. Uh, it just didn't come up again. But I found it very moving. It's an essay by Hussein Ibish where he has his own interpretation of the final scene in the Red Room. So I, I, I read from that uh, over the shot of Laura laughing and crying as the angel appears. So this is that quote from Hussein Ibish's uh, essay, which I will link below as well. In one of the most poetic interpretations of Firewalk With Me, Hussein Ibish concludes, I think what she's looking at is not exactly an angel, but in fact, or also, a television. And what she's watching is Twin Peaks. Crying at her own tragedy and the grief of her friends and family. Laughing at the absurdities and the eccentricities of her friends and neighbors. And probably validated by the impact that her murder had on her community. The incoherent television snow of the opening credits is now filled up with her presence. The redemption here may not only be for Laura Palmer, but also for Twin Peaks.